dude, I fucking take drugs when I stub my little toe. You know what I mean? And you're going to tell me that like, I'm going to go experience the most like painful thing, you know, uh, imaginable. I'm not going to take drugs. Like, fuck that shit. Like, yes, give me the drugs. I do not want to experience that at all. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yuel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a bit. Well, it's last week that we recorded our last one, and uh, but it's been a while that we've had just you know you and I, mano a mano, just the two of us. Um, what have you been up to today, Mickey? Uh, well, today, uh, you know, I just want to reinforce the stereotype of the lazy entitled. Professor, uh, today, uh, me and two other uh, U of T professors uh, played hooky. We uh, got onto an island ferry and went to the Toronto Island and played disc golf uh, for the entire afternoon. And it was nice. It was fun. Yeah. So originally, I and uh, another uh, untenured assistant professor had planned to join you guys. And then it turns out the two untenured people decided that they had to stay downtown and work, and the tenured professors got to go take the day off. That's right. There are privileges to having privilege. Oh, man. I just <laughs> want you to realize how good you have it. Yes. I, yeah, I don't take my job for granted. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder, Yoel, if you uh, were considering going to uh, Toronto's latest attraction. Um, are you talking about the sex doll thing? <laughs> I'm talking about the sex doll thing. So apparently there's a brothel in Toronto that is a sex doll brothel. Um, so I was, you know, I was riding over here. I was thinking, you know, if you, if, for example, you, uh, UL. Me. Uh, yes, you. Uh, if you went to this sex brothel, would, I mean, does that, does that count as cheating? <laughs> like, is that, is that, there are, are there moral problems with that? Because you have a girlfriend. I do, yeah. Um, and I mean, it's, you know, it's you're essentially having sex with alone uh, in an imaginary doll. I mean, it's a, a doll, but an, it's an, you know, it's not a real person. Uh, so, is that okay? Or I don't know. I, I guess we'd have to ask her. What have you asked Naomi yet? I haven't. I mean, I really have no interest. But I know, I know, I you know, uh, I'm vanilla. Uh, so I, I suspect you know you were you saw this and you were. Uh... Well, you're you're saying I'm the kind of person who would be like really into the sex dolls. I saw, you know, I saw the doll. I'm like, yeah, this is exactly your type. This has got your <laughs> written all over it. <laughs> okay, so um, we actually uh, let. Oh no, wait. We want to talk about what we're drinking, don't we? And yeah. you chose today's beer, so you should you should tell our listeners. Yeah, what's I think going we've on. got a, some special uh, beer. Two different beers uh, today. One for you know pre-break and one post-break. Uh, the first choice. We're kind of actually hitting hitting back uh, some some repeats now in terms of at least in terms of brewery. So. Um, I was around uh, Bellwoods Brewery and just stopped into the bottle shop and picked up uh, another beer. We haven't had this one before. And Bellwoods, again, uh, Bellwoods Brewery in, in Toronto is a, a really, really great experimental brewery and make all kinds of interesting beers. Um, so I picked up one called a, a Tropical Milk Shark. Um, and it's a, a milkshake-style IPA, which is a strange kind of beer, actually. It's made with... Um, I believe with lactose sugar and apple pectin, and it's you know it's got a a, a hazy appearance, and it's kind of sweet and hoppy. Um, it's a really unusual beer. It, it's not a sour, um, but it has some of those notes, uh, a fruity note, and and the, and the fruits that went into this one uh, are guava, mango, and passion fruit, uh, which I think is fitting. It's the it's still summer, and today is a you know it's actually a tropical weather day, right? Super you know muggy and 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 uh, humid. So, um, yeah, I'm enjoying this beer. What do, you, what, what do you think about it? I think it's very tasty. It tastes to me a little like uh, fermented apple juice, um, but that's not a bad thing. No, I mean, it's not that, that different from this new craze of uh, wild ciders, right? I haven't heard about that. What, what is that? You know, I don't really know. Uh, I just know that ciders are all the rage, and I think there are some wild fermentation style that is maybe slightly more natural and, and, and maybe a bit more... Um, uh, it, it, you know, tastes a bit different, you know, even a bit funky a little. Uh, Interesting. Some of the ciders, yeah. Have you heard about this raw water thing? Raw water? Yeah, this is like a San Francisco Bay Area thing. So it's like, it's essentially, it's like pond water, 
It's like unfiltered, unsterilized, because, you know, people think that the natural bacteria and shit are good for you. And you have to drink it quickly because if you leave it for like a week and a half, it turns into literally like pond scum, like it goes green. And it's insanely expensive. It's like, you know, 20 bucks per whatever, two liter bottle. Dude, this sounds fucking ridiculous, man. I mean, when I go camping, yeah, I've got quote-unquote raw water. But if I drink it, I get something called beaver fever. All right? I mean, like, you know, diarrhea, you know, throwing up. You know, we do. We take many steps to avoid drinking quote-unquote raw water. Um, no fucking thank you. I'm still stuck on beaver fever. <laughs> <laughs> so one nice thing about, you know, the kind of the, almost the the the, the motto for this, this milkshake is, you know, uh, in the, the website, they say at the very end, um, the ale, or this ale, brings the vacation to you, UL. Um, I do feel like I've, I, I earned it after a day of not playing hooky and uh, transcribing figures into complicated tables. I, I think I should have the vacation brought to me. Well, fair enough. I mean, I feel I also deserve a vacation from my day of hooky. It was hot, man. Yeah, no, it was tough. It was tough for, for us all. <laughs> All right, so we got a, a lot of uh, a lot of follow up to get through, do we not? Yeah, we do. So I guess really the the kind of the, the what we'll be doing today is um, I think for the first part of the show we're gonna I simply just kind of do some follow up, uh, talk about some of our past episodes, and we have we've had a, quite a bit of uh, feedback. Um, I realize some of the timing will be off because I think by the time this airs, this will be might be mid October, I think. Well, maybe we can start, you know, even kind of a little more lighthearted. We had our one episode with uh, with Liz Page Gould. Uh, you know, what, yeah, it was UL and Mickey fall in, fall in love with Elizabeth Page Gould. And we had such heartfelt, I think, emails from all kinds of people um, really thanking us. Uh, I think I think both you and I weren't sure how it would be received. It seemed a bit, uh, I think we said it was maybe a bit self-indulgent. And uh, so we weren't sure, but a lot of people, I think, were touched. And I think um, they appreciated seeing us uh, vulnerable, um, talking about, uh, yeah, some of the you know, some of the good things, of course, in life, but also some of the hard things. And um, yeah, we got lots of, like, I think we got more personal emails, kind of personally thanking us uh, for that episode than, than any of our others, I think. Yeah, no doubt. It really seemed to connect with people. And it was great to hear that because, like, I'm... You know, I think we all are a little uncomfortable talking about that stuff publicly. Um, and it's great to hear that it when it connects with people. And uh, now we're going to dive into the uh, miserable cesspool that is U.S. politics. Yes, that's right. So uh, the episode uh, after Falling in Love was our... Um, uh, our politics issue, it's uh, you know, when, does, when does the left uh, go wrong or when does it go too far? And that one seemed, we got lots of interesting feedback. Uh, some people pushing back, some people, I think um, it's, it's been a popular episode, lots of downloads, um, but definitely lots of interesting you know, feedback and pushback and, and people just asking for clarification. Uh, so we got one, let's start with one. We got uh, one from uh, a listener named, um, I believe it's Rich uh, Delmeda. And Rich, I recognize him, his avatar. Uh, he's a student of, uh, I, I've had him a couple of my classes at uh, U of T Scarborough. And he's always, um, I've always noted him because he always asks really smart questions. Um, and I enjoyed having him in class. And these are uh, big lecture classes. So even noticing people is kind of hard, but I def definitely noticed him. Um, and he wrote back, uh, let me see if I can find uh, the quote here. Uh, I, so I guess you, Yoel, said at one point in the show, uh, you know, by discovering the truth, you are going to eventually be able to help people. And this is our kind of our, the third point that we were discussing, which is, you know, the point that truth ought to come before justice. Um, that yes, we want to be doing good. That's, you know, I think a, a lot of us want that, but uh, we can't let that desire, that, uh, that, that desire for justice come before uh, this truth-seeking motive. And he responded saying um, that some people have argued uh, that, you know, essentially this this argument has the presupposition that truth can inform morality. And I think the idea here is that um, truth will uh, determine what is good and what is bad. Uh, and I definitely see that as problematic. I mean, that's, in essence, the, um, the is-ought uh, distinction that David Hume talks about. And just because something is a certain way, is the truth, doesn't mean it ought to be the truth. Um, um, so I kind of have to think about, I had to, I had to think about that a little bit, but I think where, uh, and I appreciate this comment a lot and I thought it was really, uh, it was, it was good and, and thoughtful. Um, but I think our, 
you know, this point we're trying to make still stands. And that's because we're not trying to argue that, uh, you know, that our values come from truth. Like our, our values are almost, you know, come from our values. They're just decided upon, you know, either individually or through some moral system that we share as, as, as a culture or society. And we have this desire to do good, for example. That would be one value. Um, and once you have that, you know, uh, that value, then you need, you know, you need the truth to help you, you know, you know, guide that value. But the value, you know, the, the, the derivation of the value itself is not coming from truth. Um, but you need, uh, once you have that value there, you still need truth to kind of uh, inform that, in, inform you meeting that goal. Or not. So I think that that was the way I kind of clarified that. Um, what did you think about that, UL? Yeah, no, I think that's uh, the way you put it is exactly right. So I think we weren't entirely explicit about, you know, how we meant this um, when we talked about it originally. Um, so yeah, I, I think we were making a kind of a very modest claim, which is that given that you have certain values that come from someplace else, um, knowing the empirical facts is going to help you achieve those values. Um, so that was, uh, I, I thought, a really uh, thoughtful comment. So thank you. Thanks a lot, Rich. Uh, we appreciate the comment. Right. So let's see. I think next we wanted to do the uh, the Twitter DM. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we had another listener, and this listener was happy or, or was okay with us uh, revealing uh, his identity. This is Peter Levitt, uh, who DM'd us, and again, responding to the uh, when, the when Does the Left Go Too Far episode. And... He made, I think, an interesting observation. And so this, uh, so Peter grew up uh, religious, devout Mormon uh, for most of his life, but um, he left the church a few years ago. And uh, he he thought that there were interesting parallels between, again, these three things that we mentioned uh, uh, and something that he saw in uh, the Mormon church itself. So we talked again about, you know, the three things we mentioned were, you know, uh, arguments from identity. Uh, and he says he, he sees this as well in the Mormon church, you know, a person's morality, spirituality, trustworthiness um, uh, could and should be inferred from the relevant identity. For example, uh, uh, if they're a Mormon or not a Mormon, um, the primacy of subjectivity. Uh, so here he writes, the spirit speaks to everyone individually. And if someone claims to have been guided by the spirit to do something, you should trust them. Um, and then finally, the subordination of truth to justice. Um, and, you know, uh, some of the quotes he puts up is, you know, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Um, so the idea being that, you know, this, you know, the, uh, some version of of faith or, or 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 I guess justice, you know, we we said justice, but these kind of turning into faith, you know, it, it takes precedent over any kind of truth. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Again, I don't, you know, uh, is I find this argument interesting because it again suggests that you know these three things we nominated might not be really endemic to the left at all. It's just like three things that I thought I found uh, were egregious and I found problematic, but again, might not be inherent to the left per se. Yeah. So maybe it's something about like a uh, strong belief system in general tends to bring these sort of things along with it. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like there's no reason to think that this particular group of people who share these particular political views kind of invented these ways of thinking, right? Like you would think the psychology of this is like pretty general and it just comes out in these specific ways uh, among these folks. Yeah, that's interesting. So really it's about... Uh partisanship to some extent, like so in, the, in this case, it might be partisanship with a religious faith or it could be partisanship with a particular identity. Yeah. So, you know, John Haidt has this stuff about like uh, moral values, binding and blinding. Um, and I don't know like how much he's he's worked this out, but like it seems to me like if you have a strong group morality, then one thing that becomes very important is you know, judging people's moral qualities based on how much they adhere to that morality. And it becomes very black or white. You know, you're with us or against us. If you share our moral values, great, you're on our team. If you don't, you're out, right? And and because, you know, moral values are often kind of seen as non-negotiable, right? I can't, you know, if I'm like, sell your child into slavery, you're not going to be like, well, let's talk about the price and we'll see. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so you clearly don't have children, you will. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you'll pay me to take them <laughs> off your hands. Um, right. So so it's something where um, once you're like, well, you know, maybe there's some room for compromise here that's already seen as kind of a transgression, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
But yeah, I mean, I think Haidt's way of thinking about this is is really useful, actually. Like if we're going to bind a group together, um, then we can't be too inclusive, right? And maybe uh, if we want a strongly cohesive group, we kind of have a hair trigger about kicking people out uh, if it seems like they're not going along with the, with the orthodoxy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, agreed. Um, so let's see, does that, uh, does that conclude our follow-up? Uh, I think so. So, so Mickey, this is, this is my topic. Um, that is, I, I'm the one who thought this would be interesting to talk about. And, and this is a pretty broad question and I'm just going to put it to you. So as a scientist, how, if at all, do you think that we should be trying to publicize our work, to try to get our work kind of into the popular press, into the public eye in some way? Uh, well, this, this presupposes that we should publicize. Well, uh, an acceptable answer is we shouldn't. I actually think scientists, not only do I feel they should uh, publicize their work, uh, to some extent, I think it's a, maybe even a moral and ethical obligation, um, especially if you are, if you work for a public university or have public funds. Um, so we're public servants. We serve the public. Um, and I, I struggle with the notion that... Our work should only stay in journals. Uh, we should only be communicating with one another to other academics. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think we, to some extent, have a responsibility uh, to, to, to inform the public of what, 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 what are we actually doing. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think we, we ought to be doing it. Yeah, so what are the, the routes that you, that you like? I mean, so there's typically a university does a press release, um, uh, I guess not for every paper that a researcher there publishes, but like it's pretty common for researchers to get in, get in touch with press offices um, and get press releases out. And then journals will sometimes do press releases as well. So that's that's one way. Um, and then another way is for scientists themselves to write pieces like op-eds and so on, uh, talking about their work or, or maybe just how... Uh, research from their area or their field in general can inform some kind of active debate. So wh which of those do you think is is preferable or or maybe have they left something out? I mean, there are lots of ways now that we communicate with the public. I mean, we're communicating with the public right now. Um, so this is, uh, we are now, we are publicizing psychological science. I mean, we're doing public service right now, I think at least. <laughs> public service. I'm, I'm doing the air quotes. Uh, I'll have you know the Canadian government is paying for this beer. Uh, no, I'm kidding. This is this is out of our pocket, but uh, I feel the service we do that they should. Yeah, they should. They why can't I buy beer out of my grant? That's <laughs> what I want to know. There are safeguards in place uh, uh, so that that very thing does not happen. Um, so okay, so there are you know so there are, you know podcasts, uh, there are blog posts, uh, Twitter. Twitter is a way that sci you know that a scientist communicate with the public. Uh, you know, there, there are the press releases, there are the op-eds, there are even just, you know, regular kind of science journalism you might do. So, so I've seen um, uh, people write about not necessarily their studies, but some area that they, they know quite well and they write about it. So they're all kind of things I've seen. Yeah. So to me, there's an important distinction between I'm going to publicly discuss science. But that's what I see us as doing, right? We're talking about stuff that's going on kind of in our field broadly um, and what we think about it. And a, a lot of the Twitter discussion I see follows that template, the blog posts do. Um, the press releases, and particularly in psychology or social psychology, the op-eds as well, tend to be kind of different from that in that they're like, look at what I did recently. Um, and that is the, the aspect of talking to the public that I have concerns with, because I think that mixing your kind of like self-promotion with your public communication, like it, it, I think it has really problematic consequences. Um, I think that you are you or the university press officers or some combination of the two are uh, you're going to have a motivation to uh, to simplify, um, to leave out caveats, to overclaim, um, and that does seep out into then the news stories that are written in in the case of um, of press releases. So, uh, for example, I have here a paper that was published in uh, 
as in BMJ in 2014, the association between exaggeration and health-related science news. So this is now not social science, this is health uh, and academic press releases and observational study. And so they find um, that, uh, I'm just going to read from the abstract here, 40% of the press releases uh, contained exaggerated advice, 33% contained exaggerated causal claims, and 36% contained exaggerated inferences to humans from animal research. These are university press releases here. One important thing to note is this is exaggerated relative to the journal publication that the press release was describing, right? So if I'm in my paper already exaggerating, um, that doesn't get counted, right? So they're taking what's in the paper as sort of the ground truth. So if anything, I think these estimates are conservative. Um, and then that exaggeration is very likely to be carried forward into the news stories that are are written. So um, just for example, um, when the press releases contained exaggeration, 70% um, of news stories uh, contain similar exaggeration, according to the abstract, right? So and without that, the uh, the base rate of exaggeration is pretty low, like 10, 15 percent, something like that in the, in the news stories. Right. Assuming again, the so in other words, if the press release gets it wrong, so to speak, by by, by wrong, I mean exaggerating or overclaiming or not uh, enough qualifications, then uh, it's problematic in the news stories themselves. But if there isn't that it's more or less fine. That's right. The, so I think uh, scientists often talk about like the media as the problem, right? So we like to blame the reporters who are oversimplifying our findings and dumbing things down and et cetera. And what this uh, study shows is at least in the, the area of health and medicine, um, reporters are not to blame. Right. If the press releases don't exaggerate, then the news stories are quite unlikely to exaggerate. It's only if the press releases have the exaggeration that it then gets carried into the, the news stories as well. So really, the problem is with the press releases, not with the reporter. Right. OK, so, I mean, if I understand your argument correctly, it's that you have a problem with scientists publicizing their work. And by publicizing their work, we, you, you're referring specifically to be that uh, university press releases, journal press releases, or uh, scientists themselves directly writing op-eds. So, so th this is your problem area, correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, and the reason you have problems with it is that uh, we get it wrong. So we overclaim, we uh, make mistakes, uh, we don't add enough qualifications. But when we when we don't do that, it seems more or less fine. I mean, in terms of at least in terms of not exaggerating. Well, so in in terms of what those what those stories, uh, how those stories describe the original research, right? Now you can ask a second question, which is. Should we be sending out all these press releases about single papers at all, right? So we know, we tell each other this all the time, any one paper is provisional, science is self-correcting, we're going to get a lot of things wrong. Should we be touting this? Sure. Well, you know what? Let, let's. Let, I want to talk about that, but let, that seems like a separate point. So let's, let's get to your first point. So the first point is we, get, we make mistakes, we overclaim, we don't qualify enough. So I agree with you. Like, that's a problem. Uh, you know, and uh, we should be doing that. We definitely shouldn't be doing that. But now you're blaming the execution of the press release, the execution of the op-ed, and not the op-ed or the very, the fact that we have press releases to begin with. So for me, my my position is, even though, uh, even though we, there is a possibility of making mistakes, and even though uh, it seems like, you know, it might happen even often, uh, uh, that, the form itself is fine. In fact, I even think it's it's our part of our job. I think it's an obligation. Um, but we should be doing a better job at it. So we should uh, make sure you're you're saying when when the appropriate caveats are in the press release. Um, well, we should make sure to have those caveats. We should be monitoring our uh, our press offices a lot more than we we are. Yeah, and you know, I I don't want to put. Um, too much blame on on the press offices because I also looked at um, op-eds that are written, um, you know, by the scientists themselves. So um, I looked at the New York Times Gray Matter uh, section where they publish uh, like social science type op-eds. Popular spot for uh, psychologists. Yeah, yeah. So I I just went through and counted. So I looked at the 2018 
op-eds um, and I counted how many come from psychologists or like, let's say people at business schools with psychological training. Now there were 19 total that I found. And of those, I found that six um, met that description. So they came from psychologists or, or psychologists working um, in, in business schools. Um, all of those, all of those were essentially what I would describe as a glorified press release. So it, it really is all of them yeah. were like, check out my new paper, right? right? And it, and I know some of these papers and I think that they're good papers, but I think that format is in and of itself problematic. You know how many of those op-eds had any sort of hedging of claims, talk about limitations, talk about like, you know, we only sampled such and such people. We don't know if it'll generalize. You want to guess of the six? Well, since you're saying it, I'm going to say zero. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> zero. Right. So that is a huge problem to me. Like, how are we going to expect the public to interpret these things with a caution that we know they deserve if we're not giving them that information? Okay. So again, I, you're, you are criticizing the execution of, of the medium, of the form. And I give you that, sure. And that's on us. I don't want to blame the press, the press office. That's on us. You know, I've done this. I mean, I don't do it so much anymore. I used to do press releases a lot for, you know, maybe, you know, quite a few years ago now. I mean, like, what's the point? Actually? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, the thrill of being in the newspaper is not so thrilling anymore. Um, so, uh, but, uh, but you're, again, you're blaming the execution. So what if, what if the next gray matter piece was written, what if we co-wrote a gray matter piece? All right. And we want to discuss the uh, this uh, this new paper appearing in Nature Human Behavior. Um, now, we decide to to inform the public about this. We, we, write, we write a gray matter piece. And let's say we do it responsibly. OK, so we talk about uncertainty. We talk about variance. We talk about, you know, because we, we can't be sure that our listeners understand the notion of overlapping, you know, normal distributions. And what that means is essentially, even if things are different, you know, for the most part, the distributions are largely overlapping. Um, so we explain these kinds of things and talk about the, the weaknesses and the caveats. Um, would you be okay with that? Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. Like the whole idea of I'm going to write like an op-ed about a recent paper that isn't my paper. Like that seems weird to us, right? Like I, I jokingly suggested to a colleague um, that I was uh, talking to uh, about this, like that uh, I would be fine with a rule where you can write op-eds, but only about other people's papers. But like you would feel weird about that, right? It would be like we're kind of poaching their thing. It's like their thing to write the op-ed about. Like we can't go in there and be like, oh, these other people did this work. Okay. Okay. So I think I'm, I think I'm, I'm understanding a little bit more your objections here. So now the objection that I'm hearing is not only that we fuck it up, but uh, that... There's an inherent conflict of interest, right? So if I'm running about a paper that I uh, that I published, um, I'm trying to publicize myself, and I'm trying to I'm trying to, to increase brand Mickey. Um, and as a scientist, we shouldn't be in the place of increasing brand Mickey or brand Yoel. We should be in the in 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 the business of seeking truth and 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 publicizing whatever kind of small t truths we find. Uh, but you think because it's when you're talking about your own, it just mixed motives there. Yeah, I think it creates sort of a perverse incentive to leave out the nuance, to make it look stronger than it is. Um, and I, I think also that like people have been given this message that in order to talk to lay people, you have to leave that stuff out. So um, I, when I was doing a little background research for this episode, I actually found a, a talk by Eli Finkel, um, and uh, this is from SPSP 2015, where he talks about um, communicating your science to the public. And he says something like, you know, there's the scientific world of like nuance, and then there's the public world of like Dr. Phil. Um, and I, I think this is, uh, you know, I respect Eli a lot. I disagree with him a lot. And typically what I find is that we like diagnose the same things. And then he comes to this conclusion that to me is kind of like batshit. Sorry, Eli. And like, maybe he doesn't stand by this anymore, but he basically says, okay, so be Dr. Phil. You know, like if you're going to write the op-ed, you're going to have to simplify. And that's better than nothing, right? Like it's better that we write these oversimplified pieces that leave out the appropriate uh, caveats and limitations than to not do it at all. And I disagree, actually. I think better to not do it at all than to do it that badly. And the reason that I 
that I disagree is that like, I think eventually you keep doing that stuff and the public will catch on. Like, I feel like the public has caught on to nutrition science now, right? Oh, People gosh. are like, yeah, yeah, right. They, they, they have lost all public credibility because they're constantly overhyping these studies uh, from which you can't really make the sort of inferences that they want to make. Right. So they'll have an observational study that says eating food X was associated with this better health outcome. And then, you know, in the news stories, it's like, eat these nuts for longer life. You know what I mean? And like at this point, people are like, no, you know, we've we've heard it from you. We're done. Dude, I'm waiting for the diet that's like the all Doritos diet. Like <laughs> this is actually good for you. This is this this cures anxiety and depression um, and uh, tastes damn good. You know, I, I think you should start that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, that's funny. That's a really interesting, uh, I think, comparison. Because yeah, I think, I think with the, I think with nutrition, it, it just has such, it's, has a much more immediate impact in people's lives because, of course, people eat three times a day or more. Um, and I think psychology is more like, oh, isn't that interesting? It's almost like trivia. So, uh, although it shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, right. So, I I mean, yes, I, I agree. Um, I, that's not a very, like, optimistic, uh, re right? Like, it's and, and I feel like it is a little bit of a um, a contradiction to say, well, this is so important that we need to inform people about it. But at the same time, you know what? They're not really going to take it seriously. So whatever. No big. No, no, that's bullshit. I mean, I, I think if you're, if, if you're publicizing it, don't be like, oh, it doesn't really matter anyways. Who gives a shit? Like, no, that's, that's bullshit. Like, uh, if you're publicizing it, then you got to take it at least serious. You have to take it seriously. Um, but listen, you all, I want to get you talking, but I'm, uh, I'm out of beer. You're out of beer. And you will never be out of beer. So I'm going to finish that. No, I think you are. You know, it's kind of hot in here. So, uh, and it's fucking tasty, right? Yeah. Yeah, really good. It's great. Good choice, Mickey. Uh, thank you. So yeah, we're going to take our break and then we'll be right back. Back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to reach us. So the easiest way to get in touch with us is probably on Twitter. We're at Four Beers Pod. Uh, you can at mention us. You can DM us. Our DMs are open. Uh, so we'll get that DM whether we follow you or not. If you prefer email, uh, we can be reached at Four Beers Pod at gmail.com. And our website, as always, is fourbeers.fireside.fm, where you can also listen to our uh, back episodes as well. Um, finally, it really helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes, um, helps other people discover the show. Um, we've had some, uh, I, I would say mixed reviews. Have we not Mickey? Uh, well, I think mixed is too strong. I mean, I think we've almost every single one of our iTunes ratings has been five, but uh, we did receive a two, uh, recently. Uh, this is iTunes in Canada. Uh, and the, the title of the review, we got two stars. It was meh. Which I like. I mean, already I like the review. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I like that word. Let me just read it. I think it's kind of funny. Um, keeping with the title, this podcast is similar to an average tasting cheap beer. Served really cold on a hot day. There's a small level of satisfaction, but it's still an average tasting cheap beer. Listening is like watching someone try real hard. And they kind of succeed. But the end result cannot be considered a success. And yet, you wanted them to actually succeed. Perhaps if the hosts could understand their own biases, and I think they're talking about UUL there. Um, Definitely. It might be worth giving them more time. And I might try one again. But given the sheer volume of podcasts, I'll keep looking. So Tyler Ducharme, thank you for that review. <laughs> that is the most Canadian negative review ever. This is like, first of all, two stars, not one star. Um, and there's like, you know, he's not going to come out and say that we're assholes or anything like that. It's, it's, all, it's all very passive aggressive. Thanks, Tyler. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like, I, I, I'll take it. You know, a, a, a bad beer on a hot summer day is still pretty good. So uh, we're going to work on it. We're going to win Tyler back. Yes, That's Tyler, come, come back, please. All right. So uh, what are we drinking for the second half, Mickey? Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
inadvertently, we've we've stumbled upon a guava theme, <laughs> a guava theme today. So our first beer was, of course, the the milk shark, the the, the tropical milk shark, which, which had uh, guava in it. And now we've got back, we've gone back to Collective Arts. So this is now our second beer from Collective Arts, um, a a brewery out of uh, Hamilton. Actually, I'm really really impressed with them. They're they're really good. I really like their products. But this one's a limited edition. Goes with guava, so uh, they've ha- they had the regular goes. They've added some guava puree, let it ferment, and I think you know, it's a little bit sweeter. Um, perhaps a guava can also be tart, depending on uh, when it's uh, you know when it's in there. Um, so yeah, well let's let's check it out. Oh, and the color is nice. You've already poured yours. Oh yeah, I've been drinking it already. Ah, nice and tart. Yep, very summery. Right, so let's get us back to uh, to where we were, you all. Yeah, so um, we were talking before the break about um, scientific self-promotion, getting your work out there, putting your work out in public. Um, and we had been talking about op-eds and news stories. One more thing that I wanted to mention about the op-eds, looking through these gray matter pieces, one thing that struck me is that this model of an op-ed is you talking about your own recent work primarily in combination with like a news hook or something, right? Um, That's something that we kind of take for granted in psych. Um, I didn't see a lot of that from other fields. So for example, there were a couple written by Neil Gross, a sociologist, where he just tried to explain in general terms like things that had been in the news uh, using things that sociologists know, but not... um, not his own work. Um, there was one that I remember making a splash a little while ago by a geneticist that was talking about um, genes and uh, you know race and ethnicity. And again, not really about his own work primarily, but about like what does the field know about this question um, that that we care about, right? Well, if I remember that one correctly, I mean it wasn't directly about his work, but that's his field of expertise. I mean, he's it's, yeah, no. To me, there's a big difference between being like here's something that I know about and I'm going to explain it to you, the public, and read my new paper. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that's that, that's true. He wasn't pimping uh, anyone paper, but, although he was pimping his field. That's right. So yeah, if you're like, you know, what should scientists be doing to contribute? I, I feel like that's the model. Like, leaving aside whether you think the particular arguments that he made were, were ultimately right or not, what he's trying to do is, is he's trying to say, like, look, in our field, we know this. Here's how it bears on this important social question. Here's how we can have a more scientifically informed discussion about this. Not... I ran five studies, you know, new paper coming out in JPG. You know what I mean? Yeah. Check me out. Yeah. Okay. So if I understand your objections thus far, uh, it's uh, one is that we get, we make mistakes or maybe mistakes isn't correct, but we exaggerate and we don't uh, uh, add enough qualifications. Uh, The second is we have an inherent uh, conflict of interest. Uh, especially with these kind of gray matter pieces or, 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 or let's say, uh, press releases. Um, and uh, so th- th- those are the two things. Now, so, okay, so I, I, think, I, I think I'm with you. Uh, I think both those things are, uh, are bad. Uh, but I think one, the, the first one is correctable. I think we can uh, train scientists to speak more carefully, to, to use more words running to uncertainty. So I think number one is correctable, okay? Number two, you know, I was prepared. I thought I had all these great arguments, and, and I, I, this, I still think I do, but I think that one, uh, I hear you there. That one's like you're promoting a brand. Uh, the, brand could be, the brand could be you. It could be your university. Um, and it seems like, yeah, the incentives are misaligned. So, so that one I'll, I'll give to you. Um, but now, what about my view, which is that to some extent, we are beholden to the public and we ought to be talking about our field and our science. Do, do you think that's true or do you, do you, do you want to push back again? No, no, I, I think that that's right um, with the appropriate caution. So, so my problem really is that we are conflating two things. Um, we are uh, conflating getting the knowledge that we've accumulated as a field out there um, and applying it to problems that people care about, which which I'm all for, with um, promoting our own work. And I, I think often what we're doing is we're doing the latter, but we're giving ourselves credit for the former, 
right? So it it seems to me to be like very self-interested in a way that people don't like to admit. And I, I think they would feel a little bad if they're like, yeah, just showing my new paper. And so they wrap it in this fancy justification of like, oh, informing the public, you know, part of our mission, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I think that um, if we had a norm as a field against directly promoting your own work, not that I want to ban anybody from doing it, but that if we generally had a feeling of like, well, that's a little tacky, right? And we're like, if you're going to write an op-ed, it should be, I'm going to distill the knowledge that we have in a field or in an area and explain something to people in a way that might help them, right? Like, I have no problem with that. And I think that kind of naturally reduces a lot of these perverse incentives to make things seem more definitive than they actually are. Yeah, I mean, I hear you, but I think it's, there's still grayness here, right? So uh, let's go back to that example of that geneticist who wrote this this, this, this op-ed. Um, you know, there's still the incentive for that person. I mean, it's still, this person's in the spotlight. I mean, that was probably one of the more controversial op-eds in a while. And I suspect that uh, made his dean happy, made his chair happy. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know who this person is. I'm not sure what, 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 what uh, stage they are in their careers, but it could be helpful for their careers. Um, so the incentives are still not necessarily aligned. Um, uh, we can get another example. So, you know, our first guest, Paul Bloom, um, uh, who we, of course we like and admire. Um, he has written a bunch of uh, public, uh, you know, you know, op eds or, or, or essays in the New Yorker, in the Atlantic, in in, in New York Times, and he's not necessarily, you know, uh, let's say uh, promoting any one paper, but he's promoting an idea by Paul Bloom, right? So he he wrote one about like his thesis, very interesting, controversial thesis about empathy being, you know, not as good as we think it is. Um, now that's again, that's not his. Uh, paper, but it's he's promoting his thesis, and he is. Um, one could argue that those kinds of op-eds, you know, those specific ones, were marketing tools for his book. So he's got the same kind of perverse incentives. Uh, so, what do you think about those? Yeah, no, I I think that's a good point. I mean, in the end, like the the reason people do this, at least in part, is it's good for their reputation, right? And that reputational benefit is sort of the currency that you get paid in for doing this stuff. And and I don't think that that is, I don't intrinsically have a problem with that because realistically, like it's work to do this, right? And it's time that you could be spending doing other things and people won't do it unless they're somehow compensated, right? Um, so then it's just a question of like, where do you draw that line? And to me, when it's promoting, kind of directly promoting your own work, then I think it's the incentives are just, for me, too far out of whack. Whereas when you are trying to kind of give the sense of like, what does the field say about this? I think that you are going to be less motivated to kind of put a positive uh, spin on things, right? You're you're less invested in making things look better than they are. Right. Okay. So your your real objection, it seems like, is uh, promoting any one paper, um, and you know, one of your own papers, I should say. So you know, me you know, me promoting your paper wouldn't be a big deal. You wouldn't have a problem with that. Um, I think realistically, like you can't really imagine that that's, you yeah. know, what's the world in which that happens. Right. And I think that's a that that's actually a great point um, that it ties into this problem. And I think it is a problem of talking about single papers like they're much more definitive than they are. Right. And you're motivated to do that if it's your own recent work. You're not really motivated to do that if it's not. Right. So then you're much more likely to rely on kind of the consensus of the field or an area, which obviously can still be wrong. Right. Right. But I think it's less likely to be wrong than one specific paper. OK, so what if you so I've done this before. Um, and again, I mean, I've kind of changed my I don't know if I changed my view about publicizing this stuff, but I, I just don't do it as much. Um, uh, so I've uh, written uh, not for The New York Times, but I think for The Global Mail, I remember once writing a an op ed. Uh, that was about one of my papers, but it was a review paper. It was a you know a summary paper. Um, so again, that, now that's me. It's still pimping my work, but it's not. It's not any one study. It's kind of a, a field. It's an idea. It's a, a topic that I think the lay public might be interested in. Um, what do you think of those? Yeah, um, 
I, I, I think I have less of a problem with that. Like, I think the self-promotion aspect, like, it, I mean, okay. Full disclosure, I've never published one of these things where I say you'd be like, ah, it's all well and good for Inbar to complain that people should do this. But it's not like the New York Times is like knocking on my door and being like, please write us not better. Whatever. But how many have you tried to write? Uh, you know, Mike Sargent of Tatter Podcast and I one time, a long time ago, this he took the lead on it, submitted something uh, and they, uh, I don't think it got published anywhere. So one, one. So yes, sour grapes. One. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just a hater, man. <laughs> I just hate your success. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, no, you know, so like, okay, the self-promotion, whatever. Um, I think my real substantive problem is with this, like elevating single papers to like kind of a definitive status that they really don't have. So if it's a review that says like, you know, the consensus of this like body of research is such and such, then that's already for me, I think a lot better. Okay, so now, okay, so now, uh, let's let uh, a slightly different scenario. Um, now it's not you; it's not Yoel writing uh, an op-ed, a great matter piece, uh, rejected uh, one, of course. Um, but uh, but it's uh, it's Dan Ingber, you know, uh, columnist who we we both uh, we both admire and like. Uh, it's Slate, and he writes about you know, uh, Inbar talks about you know uh, attitude towards GMO research, uh, GMO foods. Um, and you know, and you, you consulted with him, uh, you know, he interviews you and you're quoted extensively, uh, but it's still one study. So how, what do you think of those? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think I'm not intrinsically against reporting the findings of, of single papers. Um, but I do think that it needs to be presented in a way that makes it clear how much we don't know. Um, and personally, there's certain journalists that I trust to get it right. Um, so certainly Dan would be one of those. Jesse Single would be one of those. And on occasion, I've I've talked to people that I trust about a recent paper and, uh, you know, given them background on it or whatever. Um, and I think that if that's done, you know, appropriately, um, I, I think that's OK. Um I don't know if I love it, uh, but, you know, at a certain point, I'm like willing to be realistic about it. And also, you you don't have a choice, to, you know, it turns out. So I've had, uh, it's kind of strange, actually. I've had incidences where, uh, incidents where I've just put out a paper on, on, on a preprint server and like two days later, it's in, it's in a newspaper. And I'm like, I was never interviewed. I was never consulted. I was never... Uh, I, I, no press release, nothing, and and it was it was discussed in uh, in, in in like an online newspaper. It was just weird. Yeah, well, it's just just because you're that famous. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you publish in the New York Times enough. <laughs> well, no, I, my point is that you don't necessarily have a control over this. So so here is now a counterpoint to you know your objections. Given that we don't have a choice, uh, like I said, it's happened to me. I think a couple of times now, where yeah, you know, um, journalists troll um, Twitter and. They have found my stuff a couple of times now and, and reports of it, you know, not necessarily big papers, but, you know, still, you know, some you know, more listeners and, and readers than our podcast. Um, and uh, I had no choice. So so given that, given that uh, at least some of our papers will be written about whether we want to or not, um, isn't it better for a scientist, him or herself, to to write about it and talk about it? Assuming, again, we maybe have some retraining of the field and being, hey, dudes, like, uh, you know, we've been massively overclaiming, exaggerating, not giving enough nuance, you know, and, and as a result, when it turns out that the work isn't replicable or, you know, you know it gets overturned or uh, or maybe it's different, you know, uh, in two or three years later, um, we lose credibility because of these things. So let's, you know, change our ways. Um, so wouldn't that be fine? You mean, like, wouldn't it be preferable for scientists to write about these things themselves rather than leaving it to journalists? I, yes, yes. Yeah, um, no, I don't think so. Um, I I think, so, like I said before, like, I, I think the coverage of single papers, like, I understand why from a news perspective, like, it's done that way. Um, I And I've encouraged it in the past and, and now kind of regret having done that. I, I just don't think... 
that it's a good idea. So like, I think we can be realistic and recognize that it's going to happen. And if a journalist contacts us and is like, hey, tell me about your paper, I'm writing a story, then I think it's actually incumbent on us to give the proper context. Um, but I don't think that we should be out there doing more of this, right? More adding to the adding to the problem. Okay, so the real crux of this is the conflict of interest is, is what I'm getting. And, and also the, the, the fact that any one study is so... There's so much uncertainty about anyone's studies. So why would you write about this yourself? And if a journalist is doing it, then they, they're they likely to, or they should at least, consult other people to opine about your paper. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, a good science journalist will like call around and get quotes from people who aren't involved in the project um, to get context, um, to put it in the appropriate context. But you know, honestly, like, in, I don't blame journalists for this. A lot of people are working on a very tight deadline um, and they just got to get the thing out. So what they're going to do, and, and I think this gets to where we started, is they're going to like rewrite the press release. And if you're lucky, they're going to call the author for a comment. Right. And so I've definitely done some pushing back where people want to make these really general conclusions. I'm like, no, the research really doesn't show that. Like it just shows these other things. Really, you hate GMO foods, right, Yoel? <laughs> Uh, yeah, really, I'm on Monsanto's payroll. <laughs> or I guess it's now uh, Bayer, uh, their uh, sinister agenda. Yeah, so, so you know, and I think that we can do a bit there. Like, I, I know that journalists, like, they do want to get it right. Um, and they do respond if you tell them, like, no, I think this is oversimplified. Like, you know, you should be, here's the, the caveats that you should be including and so on. Um, so I think that's, Good and and also like to be honest, it's going to happen with or without us, right? They're going to write our story regardless their story regardless of whether they get a comment from the author or not. Um, so I think we um, have an opportunity there to improve the story, and I think we should take it. I think um, Sanjay Srivastava he uh, he proposed some rule of like you know, if there's a bad story about your work as a researcher, it's your job to kind of push back on that um, if you think it's bad. I think that's an interesting, I I don't, I don't know whether I agree 100%, but I think it's interesting to say like, look, like you're kind of responsible for how things are covered um, in that you can always have the option to say like, I don't think this is an accurate like portrayal of of the work that we actually did. Yeah, yeah, I I, I think I tend to agree with that with that comment. I, I think I've seen that done before uh, on Twitter. I, uh, who I forget now who did it, but I saw someone on Twitter pushing back against some news story of uh, you know about their work, and I thought that was uh, admirable. Yeah, right. So we I, I think that's part of the job is that we have sometimes a public platform where we're able to do that. Um, and we're in a position to kind of correct these stories or add those qualifications even if the original reporter doesn't doesn't want to do that. And that is our responsibility, right? Like it is about our stuff. Even if we didn't, you know, push the person to write the story, I think we have a sort of ownership over that. Right. Um, so, okay, I want to ask you one last thing. What, you know, one, your opinion on one, it's not necessarily in newspapers or magazines, but it's still, you know, communicating to the public. And I wanted to get your, 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 your perspective on this. Uh, so what is your perspective on writing pop books. So books that are geared uh, to a lay audience, uh, which I think, I'm not sure if this has increased in frequency in the past, you know, 20 years, or, I mean, it seems like it. It seems like since Malcolm Gladwell um, achieved so much success writing about, you know, essentially psychology, um, we're seeing more and more psychologists get in the book writing game. Uh, and there, of course, is also a conflict of interest because now there's a monetary conflict of interest and a speaking circuit conflict of interest. Um, but again, uh, you know, isn't isn't it our responsibility to, to 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 teach the public what we know, what we what they're paying us to do? Essentially, yeah, um, I'm. I feel conflicted about it. So, uh, like you said, like I'm not. I'm not crazy about some of those conflicts of interest. And I, I think that they are, you know, real. Um, at the same time, like I teach an undergraduate class where I don't have a textbook. And a lot of what I assign is actually chapters from kind of popular science books. So I use a lot of Thinking Fast and Slow, the Kahneman book, which I think is a great book, uh, except for the one like priming chapter. You <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that right. out, it's awesome. 
Um, Duncan Watts, uh, Everything is Obvious, uh, is, an I, I think, an amazing book. Um, I use Nate Silver's book a lot. Now, he's not an academic, but he's a, certainly like very kind of nerdy guy, um, Signal in the Noise. Um, so I, I think it's, it's definitely possible to do it well. Um, and I think it does, like, it can, it can add a lot of value. Um, like my parents read Thinking Fast and Slow, right? Like they're not going to, they're never, never once in their life have they read one of my papers and I would not expect them to. <laughs> they, I mean, just, just to put this in context, didn't your parents or at least your dad also read 12 Rules for Life? No, he didn't read the book. He's just heard a lot about Jordan Peterson. Thinks and, he has some good ideas, and he and he loves you more now because of it. Yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> okay, back to your. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To your so point. anyway, anyway, the point is, it does kind of get uh, our science out there to people who wouldn't otherwise encounter it. It's um, a format that allows for more um, qualification, putting things in context, and so on, just because you have more words. Um, so I think it can be really valuable. Now the temptation is to write like a, you know a self help book or a you know, one of these business self-help books or whatever that's like, apply the magic of behavioral science to double your sales or what have you. Dude, I think we should have like a two psychologists, four beer self-help book. <laughs> I think like, I think we're distilling, you know, certain, you know, like credos and maxims and, you know, just, you know, uh, uh, kind of like the dude from the Big Lebowski, you know, a way to live. I think we have lots of wisdom to impart upon many people. You're right. One might say that we have a moral obligation. <laughs> we are public service after all. Exactly. exactly. We need to serve the public. That's right. That's right. Um, all right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get right on that, aren't we? Yeah, I think we should uh, yeah, contact our uh, contact to Paul Bloom's agent. Yeah, Paul, have have him or her call us. Yes, uh, we've got a, a goal. Uh, you know, a, a, a golden idea here. Okay, I've got one last thing, and this is maybe. Uh, some I, I've seen some people suggest that we shouldn't publicize uh, all the replication problems we've had, right? So one argument I've heard, uh, this is many years ago now, um, is, well, listen, we can't publicize, we can't have a rep reproducibility project. We, you know, uh, any outcome of that is going to lead to, you know, to shade being cast on our field and there'll be less funding and, 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 and our field will suffer as a result. Uh, so we shouldn't publicize that at all. Um, but of course, um, my argument, you know, from the beginning is, hey, um, whatever it is, the, the truth is important. This goes back to one of our, one of the things we talked about in one of our earlier episodes. The truth is important. You know, that's truth that is inconvenient. You know, that's truth that, you know, um, and again, small t truth um, is, you know, makes us look bad. Well, so be it. So, well, we deserve it. We deserve whatever repercussions um, might follow us, assuming it's proportionate. Yeah, that's interesting. So like, Given that I was just complaining about, you know, news coverage for for single study uh, or uh, single papers, right? Um, should you, you know, the recent nature of human behavior, after all, only a single paper, should you be reluctant about putting that out there in the media, given that those conclusions are necessarily tentative? You know, I would, to me, that's a bit of a special case, given that there's so much stuff out there kind of uh, informing the public or giving advice or whatever on the basis of social psychology research. And so I think it's important to give people kind of a context for like evaluating those claims, including like how reproducible is this research? And I, you know, I realize you can't necessarily generalize from the sample that they have. Can, dude, like I, you're being inconsistent now. I feel, I feel you're being unprincipled a little bit. Yeah, I, what I don't like is doing it as routine or doing it as a rule. Um, I think in some extraordinary cases, like, I, you know, so for example, like um, the ego depletion triple R. Um, I think that's obviously it's a it's a single paper, but it is a, a very informative, and it's informative about something that's really important, and that the public has heard a lot about already. So in that case, I'd say like, yeah, you know what? Like, I, I, I think it's worth talking about, right? Um, what I'm arguing for is kind of a general standard, uh, not a default, let's say, not like a hard and fast rule that says never. Um, and then, of course, like where you draw that line, like that's the, you know, obviously a judgment call. 
Um, to me, it would be something where you have like real confidence in the results because like it's not just like one lab, it's not just like one lab's 500 participants or whatever. It's like lots of labs getting together, trying to give a definitive answer to something, some important question. There, I think it's like it's more justifiable to say like we should we should do media on this stuff. Okay, so maybe if, if I can summarize and, and like drop principle here, it's that you're like, yeah, okay, we, we, we've changed our mind about this thing in a significant way, and I'm fairly confident about these new conclusions. Yeah. And, and there you'd be okay with it. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. Exactly. Okay. Okay. You are principled then in the end. <laughs> it just took us a while. You're like, you pulled this out of me. <laughs> it took us a while to get to the principles. Um, well, that's good. Um, well, I think... I might think we're actually closer on this than than, than, than it might appear. I mean, I think the real, if I understand you, I think the real objection is the overclaiming, the mistakes, the lack of caveats, for especially on studies that are essentially not moving the dial, if we judge dial movement, you know, appropriately. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I'm still going to keep submitting those gray matter pieces. <laughs> Dude, I, 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 I could send you an editor's uh, email address. If you Thanks, want. Matt. So are we done? I think we are. I think we've, uh, we've settled our differences. Yeah. Uh, well, this was good. I mean, it was good to, it's good to be back, uh, you know, uh, just the two of us. I love the guests, but I think it's good that we do these where it's, where it's just us. Hey, I want to point out, can we compare how oh much God. beer is left? I'm beating you. Oh my Mickey, God. Listeners, Mickey has half a beer left. Okay. But I, I am going to drink it all now. You're going to chug it? I definitely all right. am. All right. We're, we're, we're both going to. Uh, done. Done. All right. We've, com we, we've, we've, I think, fulfilled our part of the bargain with our listeners. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No one beer in bar tonight. <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, well, all right. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, thanks for listening, and uh, catch you next time. <laughs>